Hello and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brennan Buddha. In this episode, we are returning to the transformation of Martin Lake by Jeff Vandermeer. We're reading this in the 2001 collection City of Saints and Mad Men, all about ambergris. We've talked about the new edition that's out there. I don't know. Jeff Vandermeer has migrated to the general fiction section typically, so you might find a copy of that book there. You might still find it in the science fiction and fantasy section at your local bookstore, Barnes & Noble. But yeah, this is our third episode. We've spent two episodes recapping it and commenting on the text. This one, we'll be discussing it. And this is kind of a milestone here for the show, for Elder Sign. This is the last episode of the show that we're going to do for the foreseeable future that has not been nominated to the polls by one of our listeners. Uh, since we've started selling nominations and also getting more Patreon support, we have all the ballots <laughs> are they're full. They're full of of things that listeners have picked out, not things that we've picked out. This is one that I wanted to do and throw on the ballot. But hey, our Patreon supporters voted for it and voted for it in droves as well. But at this point, basically creative control <laughs> over this podcast is now totally out of our hands and is totally in the hands of our, our listeners and in particular our, our Patreon supporters. And that's really awesome for us. This is a, a level of engagement with the show that I think is really touching for us, but then also is really exciting for us, where we know that we're always talking about things that you want to hear us talk about. And if there are stories out there that you would like to hear us talk about that does that seem like we are getting to, there's a great way to make that happen. You can purchase a nomination. You can join us on Patreon at, at some of the higher levels. You get a, a free nomination. Some of them even get recurring nominations as well. So if that's something that interests you, we hope you'll, you'll check out those options. Be sure to check out our site on Patreon. It helps us so much to have support. We would love everyone who's listening to this show to support us, to help us grow the network and also kind of focus more on it. And uh, it's we love doing this. So we'd love for your support so we can continue to do it. Buying nominations or supporting us at a level where you get recurring nominations is a great way to support the show. As you said, Glenn, it's awesome to know that we are covering stories that our listeners want us to cover instead of having to go through the whole library of every book ever written and pick stuff out. <laughs> Uh, so it's also kind of a relief to us to, to get that sort of help. And one of the things that's been so great, actually, about getting nominations, also commissions, is that it has actually opened us up to doing things that otherwise we we might not have done. Things we writers, right, we've not even actually heard of, let alone read. And that's been really exciting. So we do hope that even more of you will take us up on that. And if you are interested in nominating something to a ballot or going the extra step in commissioning us to do a bonus episode, you can get in touch with us to arrange that. You can do that at at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com, or you can write to us on Patreon or uh, message us on, on Twitter. Those are all great ways to get a hold of us. Well, Brandon, we've got uh, a lot to talk about. This is a massive story, one of the biggest, one of the longest stories that we've done here on, on Elder Sign, at least. And uh, uh, it's a good one. It's a big story. So where do you want to start our discussion? Well, I hope I've kind of come up with a way to talk about this story that strikes at a lot of what we were talking about in our recap episodes without kind of being overwhelming. And as I said at the end of our last recap episode, I really want to take a look at the different levels that the story operates on in order to draw out how this story is making claims about how art comes to be or we can wonder if this story is acting as a moral tale or a fable on any level. Does it have a moral or is it 
something else entirely. And, and I want to start with that kind of sense of the story being something else entirely. This story takes the explicit form and it's written in the mode of what's called the Kunstler Roman or the artist novel. It's a story about how an artist comes to be. It's a story about the maturation, the transformation of an artist, basically. And I think that this is kind of a mildly satirical or weird version of the form as well. I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about the fake artists in this story who belong to real art movements like symbolists. And I think some, the symbolists will come up naturally in our discussion, though at times the symbolists felt like surrealists to me as in a movement. We could also talk about the overt allusion to Nabokov's invitation to a beheading, but I'm not sure that getting into all that nitty gritty is going to bring as much out of this story as is there, because looking at the mode of storytelling as a Kunstler Roman will allow kind of the meaning of the story and what Vandermeer's after emerge uh, better than talking about symbolists for an hour and a half. But <laughs> hey, if you're an art buff, all those references are there. And if you've read Invitation to a Beheading and are like, you guys are missing so much, uh, tell us about it on the forums because I haven't read Invitation to a Beheading and did not have time to read it on top of reading this story twice, which is about 200 pages of reading yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and putting together all of this uh, material for it. So uh, I'd love to hear how you think Nabokov's work plays a role in Vandermeer's fiction, which we know that Nabokov was a, is a major influence on, on Vandermeer as a writer. Um, let me just give you a quick example of a Kunstler Roman, if, if you're not aware of it as a, as a genre, Glenn, I'm sure you've read some of these without knowing it. I mean, on the Wikipedia page, for instance, like Jane Eyre is referenced as a Kunstler Roman, though I'm not quite sure how that works. Uh, but the, for me, the most well-known example of this type of fiction is James Joyce's Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And one of the tropes of the genre, as I see it, is this sense that there's some kind of major trade-off in becoming a great artist. You have to sacrifice something. The artists, great artists, see the world differently, and that makes you an outsider. Or maybe you've been marked with some kind of great gift that requires you to sacrifice normal social relations, like family relationships, or you even have to make a deal with the devil in order for your art to come to fruition. And that means that perhaps Courage, a certain type of existential courage is a natural part of becoming a great artist in this genre as well. And courage is a virtue. That's an ethical claim. So there is at least some kind of ethical dimension to these stories as well, though perhaps artists are called to different different ethics in order to live out these, the courage of their art and what it demands of them. One way then that Vandermeer gives us a sense of the dichotomy between the life of the artist and the calling of the artist and the critic, maybe we could call this the spectator, the spectator's life, the one who participates in the artwork as um, an audience member, somebody who encounters it that is not the artist, that's the spectator, is through the way that the text switches between this close third person perspective in the main narrative and the sort of critical detective work easily debunked by uh, Janice Shriek. Shriek is the critic in the story. She's trying to piece together just how it is that Martin Lake came into maturity as an artist. So 
her narrative is more rooted in the sort of subjective role of the interpreter of the spectator than, than as we might find in like a really cool, I don't know, piece of work by Umberto Eco or something like that, who does art criticism really well and has some great detective type of essays that feel like you're a detective figuring out the meaning of an artwork. But Glenn, what I want to start by asking you as we kind of move through this story as a Kunstler Roman is why you think Vandermeer chose this strategy in telling the story. And, you know, it might have a narrative purpose, the choice of the strategy beyond this mode of storytelling that he's told the tale in. And how do you think Vandermeer is marking out the differences between the inspired artist or the great artist and the consumer of art? You know, there's a lot of questions there, but I think I'm going to start with uh, thinking about why this narrative, uh, this story is told in, with two different narratives, right? This sort of straightforward, this is how stories are told narrative that we get of Martin Lake, but then also this critical essay, a biographical cr- critique uh, that we get from Janice Shriek. And that just seemed to me so much, I mean, I shouldn't say justice in merely, but it overwhelmingly seemed to me to be Vandermeer just having a go at at criticism at people who write reviews of Vandermeer's books, really, and maybe also perhaps even especially people like us on the internet who just yap about stories and think we know something and maybe really <laughs> don't because you know this is something that we definitely encounter. It's also it's something we do, right? And it's something we do here on the podcast. We invite people to come do with us on our forum and Reddit all the time. Reddit essentially exists for this purpose, Facebook groups and so on of people talking about books and wanting to, to solve puzzles and mysteries that they have in them. Why do you think X? Why do you think Y? That's what we do in these discussions here, right? And Vandermeer is pointing out that uh, so much of that is nonsense, right? And, and I think what he's saying here is there's this have to be a symbolic reading of something. Not everything has to be a kind of like stupid Freudian interpretation. I mean, that's called out specifically uh, here in, in, the, in the story, right? That sometimes actually people are just making art about stuff that happened to them. Sometimes people are just making art as a way of processing terrible stuff that has happened to them, terrible stuff they've done, right? And that is the juxtaposition that we that we get here, right? Is Shriek just doesn't have access to what Lake's life actually is. And so she can't know that these are all things that happen to Lake, but we know that. And so Shriek not only comes off seeming sort of pompous and self-congratulatory here, but just totally wrong was totally ill-informed and actually just bad at her job, bad at the job of being a critic because she's missed the real simple explanation that what the artist in this case is doing and artists are doing in so many cases so frequently, maybe most often, is just dealing with their own life, dealing with their stuff. It's not always about this intellectual project, even when it is. There's some element of, of something else there. I really appreciated that, uh, that element of the story. Yeah, I did too. I mean, one thing that strikes me about this technique is that Vandermeer seems to be commenting on the fact that it's not just the kind of self-aggrandizement of the great artist, right? This calling to be a great artist that we see so often in Kunstler romans. It is also 
critics who contribute to the mythology of the artist as well. And that there's almost a need that we have as a culture. And, and this particularly may have been the case between the end of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century, a cultural need to make these artists as people with kind of special gifts of interpretation of our society or special ways of seeing that we simply don't have access to. And kind of Martin Bibble in this story, he's the one who smells like beets, is here to give us this sense of like what a typical consumer of art is really like is thinking, I need something that goes between the hood over the oven and my wife's needlepoint that's also going to look good on the wall and not take up too much space. And I don't want it to be a conversation piece. Like the concerns of the average consumer who's putting art in their home versus the person who's like going to the museum who's looking for this interplay of inspiration and I don't know, almost like a transcendental experience and seeing this art and being arrested in in the artist's vision and all this sort of stuff. Vandermeer is playing with all these different levels that art is looked at, consumed as and created with uh, and, and using this Janice Street character in order to do that. I want to go back and, and answer some of the other questions that you you, you threw at me here, Brandon, and, and think about the the Martin Lake narrative as this Kunstelroman as as well. All right, what is it that has made Martin Lake a great artist? And this is what so many of our stories are about, or a model that so many of our stories follow. Right, not just you know James Joyce's uh, portrait of the artist or Jane Eyre, which is actually my favorite novel. Though I'm not sure I would throw that in this category. Though you know, so much as to call. It actually just a buildings romance, but you know that's that's fine. <laughs> These labels don't really make they're me matter. Very, they're all very that closely much. related, <laughs> right? Exactly. There was there was a sort of like coming of age type of story, right? Or a coming into one's own, a growing up story, becoming a great artist story. But so many of our stories, and I think especially in literary fiction, focus on how a, a person's uh, trauma or like small things in a person's life become traumatic or can become traumatic. And I think Vandermeer makes a really interesting weird fiction move here in which he takes some of those elements uh, from like a literary fiction novel and puts them in here, right? Like he could have told us the story of Martin Lake as being about his relationship with his father. He gives us a hint that it's not the best relationship, and that could be the traumatic thing that makes a person turn into a great artist. But it it's not. It does not does not seem to be. Love life could be awful or, you know, at least stormy, right? And it definitely is stormy. He's got this real stormy relationship with with Marymount, though he's the storm, of course, right? As we pointed out in the recap episode. And it could be that that is a, a sort of traumatic or tempestuous experience that launches him into great art, the thing he needs to work out. But it it's not. So, so to, to my mind, Vandermeer's having a bit of fun there where he's saying, yeah, people have written novels about that sort of thing and how that can propel someone into uh, some kind of artistic greatness or artistic fall or whatever. But, uh, but, you know, what if our main character had to actually behead another person uh, under duress from people in bird costumes? That, that <laughs> might actually be really traumatic. That might be more traumatic than a tempestuous love life. Let, let's put some real weird fiction, horrifying trauma into a, uh, into a Kunstelroman. Yeah. And we talked even a little bit about this in the recap episodes about how these events became 
symbols in a sense. I mean, the symbolist artists are really the only movement we get referenced to in, in the story explicitly. And we talked a little bit in our recap episode about, you know, the role of Christianity as a symbolic uh, movement as as something whose mythic power allows for symbols to be given in literature and art. Uh, we, we also talked about the role of you know dreams and how these things can create art in this kind of sim- symbolist mode, the eroticism as well. And all of these are present in this story, but the artist on some level is able to turn these events into their life, at least in Vandermeer's account of Martin Lake's life, into these symbols that other people can be brought into and see greatness out of. And and that's a big part of this story. And one thing that I see happening here is that Shriek is interested in Lake's artistic forebears. That's where we get reference to the symbolists, uh, the great artists of the past that could have influenced Martin Lake. But Lake himself never thinks about these artists. And so I wonder what you think Vandermeer is suggesting by this. Lake is clearly very much formed by these symbols, institutional symbols, the iconography, the private iconographies of his father and these birds, um, these horrible events that he's able to represent in some way by making use of the kind of cultural detritus around him that is common to everybody. But I wonder what you think Vandermeer is suggesting by the mere fact of the story that Lake never thinks about anyone as an artist that's influenced him, but Shriek is very caught up in this sort of idea. Yeah, this is a really great question. And again, I think there's a lot going on here. I'm going to maybe stick a little bit on the, the the previous set of questions and then move into this new one. Because I think one of the other things that Vandermeer is doing here with this juxtaposition of the critical essay and the actual narrative of events is laying down a bit of a, a gauntlet or taking a real stance here on the impulse that critics have. And again, that's us, just to be clear, that's us. We're the bad guys in this story, right? <laughs> uh, to to look for meaning, right? To search for a reading of a work of art rather than to simply appreciate the way that the art is expressing something, right? The actual mode, the technique of the art. Because what he's showing us with the transformation of Martin Lake, the actual transformation here with his paintings is that what Lake is doing is just painting things that actually happened to him and trying to work through that. And he's he's doing a good job of that, right? Like the art is beautiful. His technique is great. Uh, and a big part of that, right, is that he's discovered that he's actually really quite good with oils and can can capture the colors that he's seeing, uh, the colors of the light, the characteristics of the light here that he's been noticing. He can finally do that with the oils. And so there, there is a, a level of skill here that Lake has that not all people will have, but that what is really most powerful about Lake's work is that he's expressing something. He's finding a way to bring the emotions inside of him the experiences inside of him and put them on display for other people. And that that is a thing, of course, that writers do as well. It is something we try really hard to appreciate here, even though I think you and I often have a more sort of academic and intellectual approach to stories and do ask, what do these things mean? What is the relationship of this story with its forebearers and so on is a big part of what we do here. But a, but a story can do none of that and still be awesome, can be profoundly 
awesome by simply engaging with the human experience, showing us something, putting that on display in in raw form. I mean, you know, Ernest Hemingway, one of my absolute favorite writers, I would say this is what he does, right? He bleeds onto the, the page. And that's what he's doing, right? There doesn't have to be meaning in his stories because what he's done is just poured his tears and his blood onto the page and given us an expression of of a life. And I think that that's what Vandermeer is talking about here, that that's what he sees the artist's job as being. And it's Shriek who kind of, and people like her, us, kind of suck the life out of it by asking these questions about meaning. Yeah, that's something we try really hard not to do here on the show. But it's it's kind of this interest in all of these ancillary issues that can, what it does essentially is mediate the person's encounter with the piece of art itself. I mean, that's why we encourage discussion so much with our audience, because we hope this doesn't ruin your encounter with a piece of art, which we try to be humble enough uh, about <laughs> our own readings. But yeah, what, what Vandermeer is doing with Shriek here is kind of lampooning the notion that somehow great works of art or even mediocre works of art, a creation needs to be mediated through some kind of critical voice or appreciation. And Vandermeer is clearly saying here, like, hey, that is absolutely not the case. The relationship that the art piece has can be with the artist itself. But when it finds a broader audience, the relationship doesn't need to be between the artist and the audience at all. It's the work in the audience, and they make their own interpretations. And that art can find such a broad audience and have such broad values is in itself a kind of, of, of a miracle of community. And I think Vandermeer wants us to really think about that and think about the way these high priests of our communities are maybe pharisaical in some <laughs> sense. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of that here in this story. I do want to think about uh, the, the, the question that you posed to me, Brandon, about the fact that Martin Lake does not ever think about artistic forebearers, and 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 uh, whereas Shriek does all the time, it does maybe suggest a sort of bifurcation of the the roles, right? In in uh, the creation of art and the appreciation of of art or or literature, right? Of the sort of the, the creative impulse and then the critical impulse, and I, I do think that the critical impulse matters. Actually, I think that's an important thing. You know, not just us. In fact, in fact not us. We're nothing. But right. Uh, but that art appreciation classes and critical scholarship of art and literature and so on are superbly important uh, in our in our culture. Uh, it is a big part of actually how new artists and new writers get made, right? Uh, there's a reason you know, all the people writing your TV shows, they're all English majors, right? They've done some reading, but what they've also done, and perhaps most important, is done some talking about stories with a community of other people interested in stories in a classroom, right? With an expert, right? That's an important thing that goes into the creation of, of new writers, for example. But I think that Vandermeer is also pointing out that that can't be the only thing that goes into the creation of new writers. One, of course, right? There just has to be a certain level of talent at some point, right? There is some talent that can't be taught, although a lot of skill can be taught, of course. But also, you need to live, you need to have something that you want to tell people about, right? Whether that's in a painting or in writing fiction, that you've actually got to go out and live. You can't just 
sit around and read books and then say, I'm going to write my own book now that you, you should really go out and, and have some experiences. I'm not sure that Vandermeer's necessarily endorsing the beheading of other people. In fact, I am certain he is not. Let's be clear. We don't want to get sued here. I'm saying this to be explicit. <laughs> he is not endorsing that. Nobody is. But he is suggesting that going out into the world is a, is a form of training that actually matters a lot. That's certainly the case. And I think that's why the scene in the story with the group of friends at the bar is one of the best scenes in in the whole story. I mean, it's such a gorgeously written scene. We talked a little bit about it on a craft level in our recap episode, uh, where we wondered if that kind of approach to introducing us to new characters works. Many of these characters we don't see again. The important part of that is that Lake, though he is in a state of detachment from that community is still needing it in order to feel like at least with his friends, at least with this group of people, there are people who are willing to look at his art and critique it maybe from a more friendly perspective, maybe from a perspective of jealousy, but at least people he trusts who are doing what he's doing or attempting what he's attempting uh, are, are willing to engage with his work at the level that he first cares about, which is the level of personal representation on some level. It seems like Lake's great work when he comes into maturation as an artist, the work because he's, he's, representing something personal in a way that resonates with a lot of people. And I think it's no mistake on Vandermeer's part that one of the paintings that Lake keeps is the one of his father's hands holding all of these bugs. And that is a clear representation of how Lake thinks about his father communicated his love for him, even though the text tells us that uh, Lake's father was a nonverbal man. So the way Lake's father showed his love for Lake was by showing these magical insects at the end of a long day of work. The, the last bit of energy he had for his child was to share wonder with him. And uh, I mean, it's a really beautiful thread throughout the story, I think. But yeah, what I'm saying is, I guess that it's the community part of this story. This story would be so much less without that community of friends and lovers, because that's Vandermeer living his life in the city, worrying about rent, worrying if he has enough money to tip the bartender, worrying if he can get beers with his friends while he's working on a stupid commission, commiserating about his stupid commissions, talking to people who have more experience than him in this world that he's trying to break into. That's all a major part of the life lived that allows Lake the grounds to, to build his artworks upon. Well, we had also been talking a little bit about consuming art and um, just not just the community of people that allow art to be possible, but the community of people who respond to it and how that in itself can build the, the you know different schools of thought about an artist and all that sort of stuff. But art has to make it to an audience somehow. And we see that kind of happen on two levels. There's Shriek's Gallery, which doesn't seem to be too influential. Uh, if Martin Bibble is a kind of characteristic person shopping there, uh, it's like going into a, a print store at a mall back when those existed and, and kind of complaining about the size of a Thomas Kincaid print. I mean, that's kind of what that scene reminds me of. Uh, but there is this kind of economic Economic role of art as well. 
that seems pretty important. And it, it feels to me as though part of what makes Lake get to the level he gets to, yes, it's his skill as an artist, but it's also his ability to reach the audience in a, in a material sense. And there's this sense I get from the scene of the beheading that these people are promising Lake that he will be a great artist if he goes through with this. And if it is Hogbat Batan and his goons who are behind the changes of power in the city until Hogbatan finally has to step in and, and take charge himself, that it's their influence that the critics is what you were talking about. Who And I was talking about how they mediate the artistic encounter, the encounter with the art piece, that there's an incentive also to get art sold or out in front of people. And I wondered if you thought that Hogbatan had a big influence on getting Lake's new art out in front of critics and audiences to get this broader appreciation, to create this consensus about Lake as a great artist. Well, the real question I think that we need to answer before we can take any of that up is... Well, I guess maybe it's two things. One, do we actually think that this is Hergbotten and his goons in these costumes? Or do we think it's just somebody that we've not met at all, totally random? Or do we think it's Raph? Is this all supposed to be a practical joke? That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was an off-mic conversation that you and I you and I had that we don't we don't actually believe, but I wanted to air that out anyway. I guess the real question is do we think that uh, these that the owl is Hergbotten? I do. I'll say that I do. I think Vandermeer wants us to. What, what, what's your thought about that, Brandon? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of obvious that that's the case. I think we have to take Lake's instinct in that moment as the truth of the situation when he sees Hogbotten and his goons uh, at the funeral and thinks, yeah, that was them. I can tell by the way they moved. That, to me, I think is is an obvious indicator, especially as this story is so caught up with symbols and their connection to reality, that this is, to me, an indisputable fact of the story. And then I guess the other question that we have to answer is, is a question that the owl, Hugbotten, proposes or asks in the story, which is, was Martin Lake actually chosen? Did they pick him out for this? Or did they just bring this envelope to the the post office and just put it in any box just randomly is this coincidence i i almost got the feeling in rereading this story that they gave it to the post office attendant and it didn't even come out of a box like it didn't even make it into one uh and and there's almost this sense of sleight of hand though maybe that's all in my imagination that could be headcanon <laughs> that the Post office attendant was just irritated and just said, yeah, this is for you. This came out of your box. <laughs> I, I, I also I also wondered if it went to hundreds of boxes and just most people ignored it. These are great observations here. I, I don't think that it went to hundreds of people and other people just <laughs> ignored it. I think the odds of that happening are so slim. And I think if that was the case, Vandermeer would show us that because that would be an interesting element of, of Lake's character at that point, that he's the only one who responded to this. But I actually really like your idea that it never was in his box. It was just the postman who who had it, because we know that he's wearing red. He's wearing the color of the anti-bender fa faction. And obviously, Hugbotten is 
at the head of the the anti-bender faction, though other people might not be aware of that, right? So you can see where that might just happen, uh, where it's just given to him to give randomly to, with, with to somebody, right? What those instructions could be, but in in any case, whether any of that's right, I, I agree with the. The, the heart of what you're saying, which is that they don't know who Martin Lake is. I think that that's clear and that they want him to wear the mask. Uh, the stork, when he sees that Martin Lake is not wearing a mask, he's not come in costume as he was instructed, is, is almost kind of panicked to tell him to put the mask on and also wants him to stop talking. They really don't actually want to know who this is that's come to do this. That seems fairly clear to me. Uh, why it is that they won't just kill Bender themselves. Also, I think is an interesting question that may not be relevant to what we're trying to get at here, but I, I think it's very important to establish that we don't actually think that Hergbotten knows who Martin Lake is, at, at least at this point, right? Because suddenly if, when there are paintings of this real thing that happened that are like becoming extraordinarily famous and you, you know, the person who's painting them is not anonymous, that is a really crazy move on Lake's part, right? This is bold. Lake is essentially painting the scene of a crime and becoming famous doing it. And I think it's also really important that he certainly believes that the new ruler of the city is the person responsible for this murder, for abducting him and making him kill Voss Bender. And he's just flaunting this in public. I mean, he's not making any accusations. That's very clear. But still, this is a dangerous game that he's playing. It is. It's a taunt and a confession all at the same time. And the fact that he becomes famous off of it is got to be tragic in some sense. This is kind of melancholic victory or a pyrrhic victory, perhaps, for Lake. We, we should talk now. I think it's a good time to pause before we kind of zoom back in now that we zoomed out a little bit about the role that art culture even plays plays in this city. We talked about there's this sense of an explicit need to separate the economic and bureaucratic functioning of a city from its artistic cultural life. But that really calls into question, I think, the role that art plays in Ambergris and perhaps even as it's an analog to, you know, 1920s Paris or Belle Epoque Paris. What what did you make of the point that Vandermeer was trying to make, if he was even making one, if this is a story about making a point about something, about the role that art is playing in the city, about a tyrannical artist running the city, about who needs art and, and why? I, I love this city. We're going to talk about the the world a little bit later, but I just want to say here that I love this setting. I love Ambergris. I, I think that one of the things that makes it such a compelling setting is that it really harkens back to this this pre-digital revolution, really even sort of pre-television, pre-radio idea of what culture is that culture is actually this local or regional thing that we we that, that tens of millions of us hundreds of millions of us actually can't all just be watching the same tv show on the internet at the same time and like create this almost sort of global culture where every single person on the planet knows what game of thrones is right that this is hearkening back to this idea that the culture is actually something that comes out of your local community out of people that you know are making music for you performing it also writing it uh, putting on operas which are also these dramatic performances dramatic presentations creating painting writing stories and that this is how you get 
art, how you get culture in your world, how you get entertainment and decoration as well, if we want to bring it down to a sort of uh, utilitarian level like that. And that, that is something that I really love. I mean, I think the digital revolution has had some really great things. This podcast, we can only be doing this. I mean, literally only be talking to each other, but also only broadcasting, sharing this conversation with an audience because of that. And people around the world do listen to us. I mean, it's like 10, but you know, it's still people in places that we are not are able to listen to us. And that's, that is really cool. Right. But I do also miss the sort of close knitness, uh, of this, or I shouldn't say miss. I have, cause it's not like I've ever lived in, in, in a world where that's been true, but I, I guess maybe I have some sort of deep seated uh, nostalgia for a world that I never got to live in that I think Vandermeer really captures here. But then to think about sort of how that functions, right? What actually is it like when the people who are writing the books that you read, composing and performing the music that you like to enjoy, like to listen to, writing and acting in the plays that you go see when those are your neighbors or people you might at least see at a, a cafe. Uh, what is that actually like? I think, I, you know, and I can't really envision what that would be like. I've never experienced this. I've run into absolutely no famous people except, you know, in the confines of a con before. So I have no idea what that would actually be like, but I think that it has to instill a sort of uh, broader sense of, of community here, right? Especially on, on, the side of the the artist, right? Of feeling like you're you're actually interacting with or experiencing your audience as members of your community, and I think that that has to be something that's that's really compelling, actually, for art. Yeah, I mean, it really calls to mind this idea of like the Algonquin Roundtable you know, with Dorothy Parker and and uh, other folks who just ate at this restaurant every day, and you'd see them and overhear snippets of their conversation, and maybe they'd overhear snippets of yours, and that contributed to their own artwork. Uh, it's strange to live in a world where we've segmented our society to the point where great artists or at least very famous ones are, are isolated in many cases from the rest of us. And so like who is making art that reflects what it's like to live in, you know, Hazleton, Pennsylvania or anything <laughs> like that, you know, that that's not just this really strange funhouse mirror version of our world that's designed, I don't know, with the same kind of or manufactured in a sense in, in an analogous way with like the same kind of sugary sweetness that like food that's bad for us is made for us. Uh, it's, it's very strange. We live in a world where art is wholly artists are tend to be wholly separated, especially influential ones or ones that impact our broader culture from what most of us think of as common life or a life we have in common, at least if we can still find those things. And I think, uh, Vandermeer might be saying it's just not art that's for everyone. And it's not just about t the way that taste forms community. It's that artists are, in most of history, kind of accessible to everyone in some way. They have a workshop that people know. They live in a town. Um, this this kind of veneration that we have for artists now is 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 about branding and advertising. It's not about really much more than that. One of the things you brought up earlier, Brandon, and, and I think like embedded in this question is about art and artists, creative people involved in politics and, you know, Voss Bender as this opera composer who 
somehow we have no idea how, at least not, you know, just from within this story, have no idea how he becomes also essentially the political ruler, a sort of monarch, a sort of prince of the city of Ambergris. We have no idea how that actually uh, how that actually happens. And so I, I don't really know if Andermir is saying anything specific about the intersection of art and politics here, but that is something that matters, you know, in, in our world, it's become in, increasingly important in our world. And I think it's going to continue to be the case. We, we now at this point have had two presidents of the United States who were TV performers, uh, we've had uh, a governor of California and a governor of Minnesota as well, who were entertainers on on TV. There might even be more people than than that, more politicians who've come out of uh, some kind of artistic world or entertainment world is probably the better way to put it than I'm actually aware of. And certainly that's probably true in other countries as well. Uh, but I don't know that that Vandermeer was engaging with that at, at, at this point. Well, it's possible that he had read... Uh infinite jest or something like that and, and picked up on David Foster <laughs> Wallace's kind of innate fear of an entertainer becoming a politician. But like I said, this really harkens back more to the kind of nationalist movements you mentioned with Verdi in Italy, but also with uh, Hitler kind of famously being an artist, a failed artist, and then the way uh, the Nazi movement co-opted Wagner's operas and things like that. All of this calls to mind kind of a uh, tumultuous time in world history where there was a real belief that art had this extreme power over people's views, over how they viewed their governments, over how they viewed, I don't know, their society and things like that, that it's, uh, I think it's an open question. I mean, one thing that I'm, I'm thinking about as we're talking about this is whether or not a Kunstler Roman is even possible today, if it's not set, maybe not in a secondary world, but at least in a historical past, because do we even think of artists now as this these kind of great seers these great interpreters of our reality who have something to say to all of us or are they you know just kind of advertising stuff to us yeah right i mean this is the origin of the term soap opera right it's the, these stories that uh, that exist really just to sell soap to to housewives uh, after the second world war and that i think is clearly on vandermeer's mind here i mean not you know like the etymology of the term soap opera but the role of art in uh, in in people's lives, in the the life of a community, like what is art for? What does it do for us? Does it matter? You know, is it is it important? Uh, Vandermeer makes a living as a as an artist, as a as a writer, as a teller of stories, right? So clearly, he thinks it's worth doing. But what is he trying to show us here? And I I think that he really is trying to show us that what artists of all sorts, painters, composers, writers, do is to mediate between you know us the audience and the the world right to capture experiences to distill them to bring our focus to things that we might otherwise overlook for a variety of reasons. And also, though, I think something that Vandermeer's maybe poking a little bit of fun or maybe a lot of fun at actually in this story is is meaning, is to provide meaning, to ask questions. How should we live? What are the 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 obligations that we have to other people, all sorts of questions that that literature and other types of art can can ask. That these are things that are are really important for for people to have. This is what art is for. It's it's in 
particular, I think, you know, for from our perspective, it's what storytelling is for, and maybe especially what speculative fiction is for, is to ask real big picture type questions, but also just to show us people living their lives, to give us people to empathize with, which all sorts of, of uh, pedagogical and child psychology studies show that uh, children who read fiction develop a, a, a much stronger uh, sense of empathy than children who do not, and, and so on. And I, I think that that's one of the things that Vandermeer's emphasizing here by by showing us these artists at work. I think that's an excellent point. One thing that really is eerily prescient, though I was young in 2001, so perhaps uh, <laughs> it, it might not have felt that way if I were as old as I am now. But one thing that I find very prescient about the structure of this story is that the way we're introduced to the artwork isn't by our encounter with the artwork or even the story of the artist. It's first by a discourse, right? It's first by the discourse introduced by the critic. And that is how so much art even gets known today is, oh, there's a Twitter discourse about this show. I, I, what show is it? Oh my goodness. That sounds like something I'm interested in. Or on Facebook, people ranting against something or like, we get introduced to art first by the mediator and not by the art itself, which is supposed to, as you say, it, as you said, mediate the world for us in some way. We're kind of too often get introduced to art or any type of, I don't know, representative art, I guess is a way to put it. First through the mediation of the discourse and then through our encounter with the thing itself. So we're already primed with an interpretation before we get to make up our own minds about it. And I think that that goes in also to the way that that Vandermeer has structured this novella. Yeah, I think that's an awesome observation. I, I want to say one more thing about what artists do for us, artists of all sorts. And they aren't the only people who do this, but one of the things that they do for us, and this is pointed out to us in what are really, truly the first words of the story, which are the, the two epigrams that we get before we even get Janet Shriek's essay. And the first one of these is a fresh river in a beautiful meadow imagined in his mind the good painter who would someday paint it. And this presents the world as if it's kind of waiting around for humans to notice how awesome it is and tell other humans how awesome the world is. And that is something that art does for us, right? That artists, storytellers, composers, painters, sculptors, and so on can do is look at the world and show it to us, right? Show it to us, uh, show, th show us parts of the world that we've not noticed before because we've been busy or haven't been there, haven't experienced that sort of thing. Uh, can show us how beautiful and awesome the world is, but can also, of course, show us the whole range of experiences that exist in the world. This is a story about one of them. This is a story about something that is definitely never going to happen to me, but it's an uh, emotional experience to go through this that I really appreciate on that level. But of course, artists aren't the only people who do this. This is what scientists do, right? Look how cool nature is. Look how cool the cosmos is. Uh, scholars of all sorts do this, right? as historians do this, like look in the, look, look at the world, look at this human society in the past, look at this text, look how awesome this is. It is also what Martin Lake's father is doing as an insect catcher. I mean, not, not in his capacity as insect catcher, but this, this scene that we get of him coming home from work with uh, bugs in his hands that he wants to show to his son. He wants to show his son how beautiful, how cool, how amazing nature is. Look at these bugs. I spent my night with these bugs and I want to share with you how cool they are, right? That is a beautiful impulse that we have 
as humans, right? The ability to appreciate beauty, to, to wonder, to admire, but then also the ability and the desire, the drive to share that with other people. And, and, and that's really the sentiment that this story starts with. You're absolutely right. And in a way, what you're talking about is the ability for art to capture and direct our attention towards beauty or greatness or nobility or virtue or hideousness. We talked about the grotesque to make us aware of ourselves and where our attention is naturally directed anyway. And and we are, I don't know, living in a world that is <laughs> at war for to control our attention and slowing down and taking in a painting or, a, or an, even an opera, something that really demands our attention, but also is meant to edify us in some way, even if it's mediating something horrible or a tragedy can alert us to things that maybe we're ignoring or even make us aware of the things that we're naturally inclined to pay attention to that maybe even we shouldn't in some ways. And art is something I think that mediates the world through the capturing of our attention. And, you know, so this story is kind of a Kunstler Roman is all about the things that captured Martin Lake's attention that he could not avoid that he now has to live with and express through his art that also resonate with a much broader scope of people than, than just himself. And, and that's the power of icon. That's the power of image. So we've looked really briefly, even though it's been about an hour, <laughs> the aspects of this novella that make it a Kunstler Romana artist transformation story, a coming of age for an artist. Uh, but this story feels on some level like it it is presenting us with an ethical dilemma, which is a, a fable, a, a story with a moral outcome. And I wonder why you think that Vandermeer chose to present this story focusing on the, the artist's life aspect of it, rather than telling a really exciting fable about an ethical dilemma. I am a little puzzled by the the climax of this story and the way that that Vandermeer has worked that out in the plot. We talked in the recap about how Lake remains a sympathetic character for us, right? He's our protagonist, so we are we are automatically sympathizing with him in the sense that we are uh, pathizing with him. We're feeling what he's feeling. We're experiencing the world uh, of this story through him, but that he remains someone who we care about and 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 wish good things for throughout the story. Even though this is a story about how he cuts off the head of another person while that person is still alive, which is a horrible thing. And Vandermeer is able to pull that off by giving us this ethical dilemma where Lake tries to refuse, but doesn't succeed because he, he wants to stay alive himself. He is being compelled, but then ultimately actually has the 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 fate of Voss Bender sealed by the character in the Raven costume is really the person who like cuts Bender's jugular. And so Bender is going to die whether or not Lake beheads him. And the beheading of him then actually seems to not be, have anything to do with the killing of Voss Bender. I mean, I mean, not in like a technical sense, but I mean, like that's not, it's not just the death of Voss Bender that Hugbotten and his goons want here that they they want him beheaded for some reason that's just unclear to us there's there's something ritualistic going on here he's got markings on him it's really important that 
Hugbotten and his goons not be the ones to actually do the killing. They want the anonymity preserved here. They seem to really want him beheaded for some reason. So there's some some sort of meaning going on there, something ritualistic that we can't access. But what it ultimately amounts to is that Lake cuts off the head of Vossbender, but in some technical sense is not actually the murderer of Vossbender, which is also a line that that the the, the birdmen give to him as well. I'm 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 a little unconvinced by it, and I, I stand by my uh, statement that that's a a bit of a, a weakness. I think for the story, I, I I might have wanted some more strength there, but I do think getting to the heart of your question here, finally, Brandon, I've rambled to it, is that he wants lake to be both victim and actor in his traumatic experience that is going to launch him into this artistic greatness right he wants him to be uh, wrestling with having killed a person but also wants him to not be someone who wants to kill a person you mentioned the word fate there in your answer to my question. And part of the thing that's really troubling about this story as a primarily a Kunstler Roman is it's about the fate of greatness, about Martin Lake becoming this great writer. And that feels like a reward for this behavior in some way, like he's on some sort of track. And and we've mentioned a couple times how he already started working with oils. He already had this imagery of his father, like he already had the nightmare. And, and you're right to point to the weakness of the story, I think, being, though, I mean, it's a, a very minor weakness, this event around the beheading, which feels, as we've pointed out multiple times, like it's a scene in a symbolist painting itself. And Vandermeer might be commenting on the way many artists represent, especially when we think about the masters, you know, death or murder or these mythological tragedies and catastrophes that happen, uh, you know, seduction of women by gods, which is essentially rape or uh, suicide or war or all these things that the artists might not have a real close connection to, but are then asked to represent in some way. And so maybe Vandermeer is trying to bring in a a moment where the artist is actually confronted with this kind of horrible tragedy of life, rather than just being asked to sort of imaginatively represent it with their toolkit. Uh, And and that might be a piece of, of what's going on here as well, though it does have the effect of almost paradizing the traditional Kunstler Roman. You you mentioned the the price of becoming a, a great artist. Uh, you know, we've, it's, it's something we've brought up many times. Like this idea that you've got to pay a price for your your art. Sometimes people literally sell their soul to the devil so they can be really good at playing the guitar, for example. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, that it feels that way a little bit here, right? That, that that Lake becomes this great artist because he has killed this person. Uh, you know, under duress, dudes in bird costumes, right? But still killed this person. But you're pointing out, and I, I think rightly that Lake was already on this path. But I actually want to look at it from the other end. I mean, for one thing, we know that, you know, Lake loses a year of his life in just staring at clouds or at least six months in that way. And then sort of gradually over the next six months begins to come out of it. But there are some other things that we know about Lake, or at least can infer about Lake. One is he doesn't live very long. He's dead. When Janice Shriek, who presumably is his contemporary at the youngest, might actually even be a good decade, a decade and a half older than Lake. She's running this gallery, right? 
uh, she's still alive and, and Lake is not. Lake is dead. So he clearly died at a young age. How did that happen? Why did that happen? Right. We, we, we have no way of knowing that, uh, but it might be related to this trauma. Uh, it might also be related to the fact that he's uh, painting crimes, <laughs> painting scenes of this murder uh, that brought uh, the ruler of the city to power, which maybe is not something you actually should be doing uh, or can get away with doing for very long. But we, we have no way of knowing that. But we also have the real strong sense that what he's doing with a painting, these scenes is, you know, not sort of shrewdly taking a look at what happened to him and saying, I can make a buck out of this, right? He's very clearly working through his trauma, through his art. And that is something that we can infer, I think, quite clearly because Shriek comments that Lake was actually really quite annoyed at his own success, that he was he was annoyed that people thought of him as being center to the rejuvenation of culture in Ambergris, because all he's doing is really trying to wrestle with this traumatic event in his life, that he's he's not trying to rejuvenate culture. He's not trying to say anything. He's, he's trying to sleep at night. I wonder if that's why Lake finds so much, you know, after this event, so much more meaning in Voss Bender's operas. We don't really know precisely what these operas are, but we know that Bender through, you know, Shriek <laughs> had also a pathological fear of birds. And I wonder if Wake died in the same way that Bender did and that this is just kind of a way to keep the cultural life of Ambergris going, you know, that they keep on sacrificing these artists and then another great artist is on the rise. And maybe that's something kind of metaphorical about uh, different art movements and the way different artists become popular and other ones fade away, though they still continue to live. And now their art's not worth as much until after they die and and all that sort of stuff that happens in uh, the business side of the of the art world. Well, let's put this behind us and talk about the other elements of the story here. That is really, this is going to take us into a conversation briefly about world building. And I want to go into the world building, which is really about Ambergris, with uh, this mindset that the city is a character in this story. It plays a big role in the characters' lives. At times, the city feels antagonistic toward towards Martin Lake. You know, we see this in his relationship with the post office and with the fog coming in and the way the streets seem to move around to the point where many of the city's dwellers need a map even to get around in familiar places. So Ambergris is a character in its own right. And I and I wondered, Glenn, if you felt that the city functioned as a character in this story or was maybe just more uh, ancillary, like a, a, just a world building element that Vandermeer needed in order to tell this story. Yeah, the, the novella collection is called City of Saints and Madmen, right? So the, the title character of the collection is the the city it's ambergris and that that is what these stories are it's four stories in here four novellas in here uh, we've we've not even chosen the first one we've just decided to just do one do one randomly but each of them tells a different story there's some easter egging that happens here but they they focus on a different character and so what they have in common is that they all take place in this city so certainly in that sense that the city is uh, a central character but i think that that is true even if we just look at the transformation of martin lake uh, alone right the thing that is driving him the thing that he's wanting to do artistically is to capture 
the light in Ambergris, right? He's not from Ambergris. He grew up in a, a smaller community outside of another city nearby. These are all sort of independent city-states in this in this region. That he grew up away from here in a different part of the, the the world. He comes to the city and there's just something about the quality of the light here that really captivates him, but that he cannot capture. Uh, of course, it turns out that one of the big reasons he can't capture it is he's using acrylic and he should really be using oil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is you, it's so accidental. You just keep pointing out, which I think is just is just brilliant. But this, so in that sense, right, the city plays this role in his transformation. But then also, it's these locations in the city really matter to him, right? He wanders around the this the city uh, after his traumatic experience. Or, uh, I mean, in the immediate aftermath, he wanders around the city, and then he tries to recreate that. That's what he's doing for the year that he loses is just walking around, going back to the places he saw that night, uh, trying to see the city the way that he did exactly that night in that moment again and again and again. Even the journey to 45 Archmont Lane, we see that through Lake's eyes. We see that through his eyes in their the sort of painter capacity. And so in that sense, I think that, you know, the city not functions, not just as, as backdrop, but, but as muse for, for Lake. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it is certainly a muse. This capturing of light. I mean, you can say that he spent a year staring at clouds and stuff, but that, that might have just been a study <laughs> of his own to, to be able to actually understand the light in, in this, in the city. But yeah, this, this city puts obstacles in Lake's way that really guide his path the same way you might have in uh, Hero's Journey, uh, kind of your grizzled old veteran leading the character down the path they need to in order to realize their greatness or their fate. Uh, this city plays that role in this story. And I wonder then, Glenn, if you feel that it's important that the city is a character in this story. Can you imagine something like this story taking place without the setting being so active in the life of Martin Lake? Like, do you think this story would make as much sense? And I guess this is kind of a, a weird question that we will take up the, the role of the weird in this story in a minute. If this story weren't in a secondary fantasy setting, what if it was Moscow or New York City or Hong Kong or something like that? Or you know, Belle Epoque Paris or, or something along those lines. Does this story make as much sense without the intrusion of the city as uh, an active character? I think this story could be told in the, the real world. You would have to make some some changes. You wouldn't have the political backdrop of this. That might be okay to lose, right? So you could put this in, in Belle Epoque Paris, sure, Hong Kong, uh, where uh, some weirdos in bird costumes abduct somebody and make him kill somebody else. Yeah, you could you could tell that story somewhere else, but I think that you would you would miss a lot of the the beauty of the of the story. And by that I, I don't just mean that you know, I like descriptions of cityscapes, though I definitely really do. That is like a strong thing that I I go to reading for, go to literature for, because you know, my these real world cities are pretty awesome too and you could you could describe those cityscapes as well. But I think it's the strangeness of, of Ambergris actually really matters to uh, setting the mood uh, and, and setting the tone of this story, right? That, that part of the experience that Lake is going through here is that he's not from this city. He's not from here. He's a stranger. This is then strange to him. But if you set the story in New York or Paris, those aren't strange places to me. So there's a different 
type of work, a different type of writing that has to be done to make those cities strange again. And even when you do that work and pull it off, it doesn't have the same feeling as the newness, the novelty of giving us ambergris here. And I think that that's a really important quality to just the, the mood and the tone of this story. It would feel so different if it were set in the real world. So many of the particulars uh, and specifics of this city also wind their way into Lake's sort of private iconography that is essential to his artwork. And so I, I think you're right. You would lose so much by removing the strangeness or making the iconography more public by moving it to a city that we know, you know, like you can imagine him encountering the Empire State Building or something like that. And it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't have that same sense of, of wonder that the post office has with its dark history uh, and like the weird history of it as a civic institution. Uh, so much is gained by Vandermeer putting Lake in this kind of secondary fantasy setting that this story would be to me, I can't imagine it taking place any anywhere other than Ambergris. And I also can't imagine the, I don't know, ethical conundrum and things like that making sense anywhere else. Though I, I don't, I, I think the way that the Kunstler Roman would work would be very different in a mundane setting as well. Well, we've brought up kind of the way the weird functions in the story just a little bit, but now I really want to hone in on it because it's the one element of the story that we haven't <laughs> talked about it. And ostensibly, we're a weird fiction podcast. So uh, let's uh, let's take a brief moment at the end of our show here to talk about the new weird, especially as this is the first Vandermeer story that we've written. And he's kind of the, I don't know, patriarch. Him and his wife are, are the real heads of this movement. And let's use this story to examine maybe some differences between cosmic horror elements of, of Lovecraft and what we associate with weird fiction and what Vandermeer has added to the mix to generate what has become its own genre, this new weird. And I, I want to bring up a novel I read recently that fits in with this sense of the new weird. And it's a novel called The Divinity Student by Michael Sisko. And this was published by Anne Vandermeer's publishing house, Buzz City Press. It also features a city as kind of a, a core character of the novel, and it's all full of very strange settings and uh, surreal peoples and practices moving throughout the city. And having read the transformation of Martin Lake on the tale of reading The Divinity Student, you know, not to mention some of the Mieville that we've covered on the network, I get the sense that the external setting in The New Weird in this story, it feels a little Kafkaesque. It's very bureaucratic. It's tough to get around. Might be something that characterizes the new weird more than the madness or damning knowledge that comes from the explorations of characters in more horror, cosmic horror, weird fiction like Lovecraft. But I guess I want to ask you, Glenn, what are some elements of what could be characterized as the new weird that jumped out to you in your reading of this story that maybe differ from some older iterations of the genre? Yeah, I love this question. This is the sort of question you just like cannot ask a historian 
which is you know, like my, <laughs> my professional training where I just don't know what to say really uh, about things that are happening now, right? It's like I, my, my impulse is to say, well, ask me that question in a hundred years. Then I can assess what the new weird movement is when I'm you know sufficiently removed from it, but not while it's still happening. But I, I love the impulse of your question. And I think it points to, and this as this story does, something that the, the Vandermeers are, are up to in China, Mieville as well. We've covered, uh, you know, a fair bit on on this show and over on on a, my other show, Ataz, as as well. But uh, they have moved away from cosmic horror, which for so long, uh, maybe even still for for many people, certainly in the pop culture sense, has been synonymous with weird fiction, right? Seeing cosmic horror or, or mythos material as being w- what weird fiction means. The sort of mission statement of this show is actually to say, hang on, that's not quite right. There's a whole gamut here and let's explore all of it. And if we're even thinking about Lovecraft as a real central, a pivotal figure, right? Someone uh, who transforms the the mode of, of storytelling that is weird fiction, right? Where we look at things sort of before Lovecraft and then after Lovecraft. And that definitely is the way I think that most of us think about the history of the mode of storytelling for sure. But even when we do that, we tend to actually really prioritize one aspect of Lovecraft's fiction over others. And that is the cosmic horror aspect. And uh, it's something we love. I mean, like, you know, you and I love, right? We love on the show. I think many readers love. We we started this show by uh, begging listeners to help us out with our goals of covering two different H.P. Lovecraft stories that are cosmic horror stories, right? At the Mountains of Madness and the Call of Cthulhu. So, hey, we're into that. But Lovecraft wrote all of these dreamland stories as well, these stories that just take place in some sort of weird fantasy land that just have a sort of eerie mood to them. And there is something horrific often going on there, but they're not cosmic horror in this sense, right? So, uh, you know, even figuring out what is the percentage of Lovecraft's own work that actually is what people mean when they say Lovecraftian, uh, is maybe that's maybe hard to, to pin down, but it's like half, it maybe less than half actually <laughs> when we get down to it. And so this story really is tugging on that other thread, the sort of dreamlands thread which is something that Lovecraft is doing where he's really riffing on Lord Dunsany, who we've covered here, Edgar Allan Poe, who we've covered here as well. And so there's a, a kind of revitalization of that mode of of the strange here that uh, I think does definitely characterize the new weird. And we get that here. And it's it's really it's really great. Yeah, it's almost kind of co-opting both surrealism and maybe magical realism as well and it's we we've often talked about the scale of weird fiction from like weird or horror to wonder and this is much more on the wonder side than the than the dark kind of horror side though it's no less grotesque at times or, or horrifying it's more this stuff is also strange to us, but it's kind of normal to the people in the world. And so we as readers have this experience of wonder or sometimes disgust when we encounter different ethical norms or uh, creatures or animals or the way people live. But this is inviting us into a world that is not like our own, uh, maybe to helps us appreciate the mundanity of our own world in some ways. <laughs> I would not want to live in this ambergris, even though I lived in Fishtown 
down uh, in the throes of its revitalization or gentrification. <laughs> well, I will say that that this is perhaps the least uh, fantastical of the Ambergris stories. I've actually not read uh, the novel Shriek, but I have read every story in this collection, also all that peripheral material. And I've read the novel Finch that takes place here. In fact, I've done a podcast episode about Finch for my show, Ataz. Um, I, it, it's not out yet. It's going to be out in two more years because that's how I do things over on, on that show. But what I will say is that this is the least weird of them. Shriek, I suppose, since I haven't read it, might be less weird or less fantastical in that sense. But uh, Ambergris also has mushroom people. So, you know, that's a thing. It shows up very minorly in this story. We actually did not mention it in the, the recap at, at all. You, you mentioned it maybe one time, Brandon, but I didn't do it as uh, part of the sort of narrative, sort of retelling the, the story. But there are mushroom people in this story. So there's, there, there's some of that real sort of bizarre weirdness that is possible in this setting. It just doesn't show up in this story. Well, before we get out of here, before we leave this story behind, which I am, I am loath to do, I, I, I think you're right to say that we should not move to Ambergris, but I would like to visit for a little while longer. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to pose a few questions to you here, Brandon, just to kind of uh, talk about the flavor, about what, what this setting felt like to us. We, we did a, quite a bit of, of this in the recap episodes, but we, we never really sort of pinned things down. And I want to talk just first about art, right? We talked, uh, we were invoking different artists and art movements in the real world that this story brought to mind. And you had mentioned in particular Magritte as someone that you, you know, you sort of thought Lake's paintings might look like. Are there any other artists that you think that Lake's paintings look like, or that were just sort of invoked or evoked for you in the descriptions that we get of Lake's art. Two artists kind of were in my mind besides Magritte, who, who was one of my favorites as I was thinking about this story. I mentioned the other one in our uh, recap episode, which is Bosch. And that's just because I can't hear uh, creepy hellscape triptych without thinking about <laughs> Bosch. Uh, but the other one is is maybe surprisingly or unsurprisingly, Dave McKean. There's a lot of reference to collage as an art form in this story. And just some of the way that the paintings were described reminded me of some of Dave McKean's cover work for The Sandman. And then if you look at some of his other artwork as well. So those are probably the three big ones that I really thought of as in my head, what some of these paintings looked like or, or the artists they evoked. What about you? Oh yeah, I well I have I have some answers to that, but I, Dave McKean is a really great thought. I had not considered that at all, but I, I just have to take the opportunity to say, hey, on the network we do a Neil Gaiman podcast where we're reading Sandman. <laughs> so if you want to hear me and uh, Brent Helt talk about Dave McKean's art, uh, the covers in particular for every single issue of the Sandman, you can go uh, go hear that on Hanging Out with the Dream King. But but I, yeah, I had uh, some artists who are a little bit earlier than the uh, ones you're thinking of. Certainly earlier than Dave McKean, who's still alive and, and doing great art. Uh, uh, but earlier than Magritte by a sort of a generation. The the first of them is, it may be less the whole artist and more just one painting, but uh, Edvard Munch, who's most famous for the painting that in English is called The the Scream. He was a, a Norwegian painter. We actually really should transliterate that as the shriek rather than the scream. And of course, shriek is the, you know, the name of the person who is describing all of these paintings. So it's just kind of staring at you on the page as you're reading these descriptions. But, you know, that very famous painting of this, this person on a, on a bridge screaming with this sort of orange and red sky behind them, this really felt like the, the 
the triptych to me, like the, the, the zoomed in on the character while the what's happening around that person is scary. That's really what that felt like to me. And then also the descriptions of like the light and in particular sort of skies. Uh, so that really called to mind Edvard Munch's uh, The Scream, though he's a really great painter. He's got lots of, of paintings. The, the Scream is really the, the one that stood out to me. And Munch also would be contemporary to Belle Epoque, the sort of the period that we were we were thinking about here, just in terms of of the movement of the the artist as well, though. And he was in Paris, though he he painted the the scream uh, in Oslo uh, before it was called Oslo, but it was still called Christiana, I think. The other painter I was thinking about. Uh, is perhaps I think even more so is someone who's working in 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 France and and uh, frequently in Paris in the 1880s 1890s is uh, Odilon Redon who's just a really awesome uh Symbolist. He's, he's one of these symbolists that you were in, invoking. Uh, he painted a lot of scenes from literature. He actually did a lot of uh, interpreting of Poe material, but he also paints his his backgrounds in a way that I think really does the thing that Vandermeer or, or Shriek through Vandermeer is describing here with with light and and capturing the the sky with the sort of uh, the way that brushwork is done. I'm, I'm I'm not nearly as good at describing paintings as as Jeff Vandermeer is. That's obviously the case here. But you know, I would just say to listeners who are interested who haven't heard of Odilon Redon, it's R E D O N, it's his last name. Uh, Google him. Take a look at some of these images. I had the real fortune uh, in high school to see a uh, a traveling exhibit of his work at the Art Institute of Chicago, and it it blew me away. It really captured my imagination. Uh, I have always wanted actually to get a print of one of his paintings uh hang it up in my home somewhere might be the kitchen uh elizabeth does not do needlepoint but i don't know we can fix that right we can we can find a way to make that work but i've actually never done that which is a, a real sadness for me i should should uh, should get a print of his uh at some point and, and hang it up so yeah th- these were the two painters radon and, and monk for me that i was thinking of yeah i i had not heard of Radon until you just mentioned him, and I, so I was googling him while you talked. I, I did mention Munch among the uh, among the uh, symbolists, but I was not familiar with this guy. Though I think I know uh, his work, The Reader, but uh, that's the only thing that jumps out to me. His artwork is astonishingly good; it's gorgeous. But yeah, I, those are much better choices than mine. I think, and probably more in keeping with uh, the art that Vandermeer had in mind when he was evoking the the symbolists as the kind of the forebears of Lake Zone artwork. So those are great, great uh, suggestions for artists and artworks to check out. I don't usually want to pose questions to to writers about their their work. Like I think what we do here, which is, you know, make stuff up and argue about it, I think is <laughs> is really what I want to do. But I think if I, I met Jeff Vandermeer at a con or, or something that I, I might actually ask him this question, you know, was there an artist whose work that you you had in mind when you were thinking about Martin Lake? That, that's a question I would like to ask him. Well, I do have one more question. It's it's basically the same exact thing, but it's, uh, it's about music. Uh, I pose this question to you from time to time, Brandon, and I know that you do not go to your reading with uh, with theme music with a, a lot of intentionality, whereas like I do that obsessively. But I, I just wonder if you did do that this week for this story. Was there some music that uh, this story suggested to you that you had to have on while you were working on it? No, not at all. I was listening to like uh, corporate 
bossa nova chill jazz playlist while i was reading this story uh, that is demanding uh, just, an intervention that is demanding an intervention <laughs> we we just we had a lot of uh some people coming through our apartment this week uh because the our landlord is selling the place so i was just like it was just tough to get a handle on everything a lot of disruptions so i couldn't dive deep into anything which i usually try to do is find something that uh i you know it's usually jazz that i want to listen to but this week i was like no i I'm going to listen to Bossa Nova, like a corporate playlist, like they play in a coffee shop with like rainfall sounds behind it. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I, I had a real impulse. This story, I just say, I love this story. I think we've maybe been clear about that, but let's be clear about it now. This story is awesome. And I love yeah. this setting. I love this world. It's totally transportive. It was a big story. Look, we've, you know, we've done three episodes on this for the, the show. So it's a huge chunk of, of, of publication time, right? Production time for the of publication time for the, the show, but also just a lot of hours of us reading and rereading this story, taking notes on it, sending things back and forth. So it's a lot of hours of me putting on some, some music while I'm doing that work. Uh, and so I really was sucked into this story in a big way, really felt like I was living here. And so uh, the music that I, I just found myself putting on all the time was just almost entirely from Paris, uh, fin de siècle Paris, you know, Paris between sort of 1870 and uh, well, 1914, the outbreak of the First World War is really the terminal date of that term, fin de siècle there, also Belle Epoque, these two terms we've used a little bit interchangeably here, but uh, I was listening to some stuff from the 20s as well, but all of it from Paris, all of it, these uh, these French composers, uh, uh, I was listening to uh, Rav Vell, uh, Debussy, uh, Fauray as well. Uh, you know, some of the, the classics, right? The, the works people know, uh, Daphne and and Chloe by Ravel, Le Maire by Debussy, uh, some string music as well, lesser known string music uh, pieces. But the real reason I wanted to <laughs> bring this up, Brandon, though I recommend these pieces to accompany anyone's reading of this story, is that uh, uh, in the past you have answered with uh, Eric Satie's piano music, uh -huh. which is from Paris in this era. So finally, that is my answer as well. And I just feel like <laughs> there's at least one listener out there who has had some kind of drinking game around when that was ever going to be my answer. And finally, it is. So uh, to you, good listener, uh, cheers. You cannot go wrong with Satie or, or Debussy's piano music, I think. They accompany so much great. Uh, they, they accompany so many things well when, when reading. They're just peaceful and serene. I should also say, I think I was listening to a bunch of boards of Canada this week, which is the exact opposite of what you're describing uh, with strange ambient electronica music that I don't know. In, in from their album, Geo Gotti, at least one of the tracks made it into a horror movie. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I was all over the map this week. This is a question I, I feel compelled to ask you every story we do, but I, I, I hold back. I restrain myself. But <laughs> I, I love talking about what people listen to when they're reading and like why they think that goes with what they're they're reading. I mean, I might be one of like a small minority of real weirdos who do that. But uh, if, if, if we've got listeners who do that, too, I would love to hear what you were listening to while you were reading this story. And I, I think on that note, I think as we're starting to invite people to come talk with us about that story, I think we have come to the end of our coverage, sadly, because I, I really do want to keep living in this uh, in this setting, in this story a little bit more. But that is going to do it for this episode and this story. I'm Glenn McDorman. 
And I'm Brandon Buddha. Thank you so much for taking this journey with us in the transformation of Martin Lake. There is a lot we left on the table, as is always the case with novellas. So we'd love for you to come and, I don't know, help us build a community around the stories that we love uh, on our forums, as uh, claytemplemedia.com, and also on our subreddit, which is Clay Temple Media. Uh, your engagement with us really, I don't know, it's a motivating factor in, in why we do these shows. A big part of that engagement now is that listeners are completely deciding not just what gets voted on, but what is also even just appearing, what is up to be voted on, on the ballots that we we send to our Patreon supporters at the Archon level and up every other month to decide what we do on the show. And if you'd like to engage with the show on that level, if you'd like to have your say in, in what we cover, please join us on Patreon at that level. Contact us at our email or any of our social media accounts about a story you'd like to nominate. Or if you want to even go a step further and, and just commission a bonus episode uh, to get us to cover a, a great story that uh, that, we're, that we haven't talked about yet, we would love to do that for you. The next time we are going to be back with another absolutely phenomenal story. This is The River Styx Runs Upstream by Dan Simmons. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>